Can you imagine what it's going to be like when we get to heaven? Sometimes when I sing, I'm off tune. Sometimes I even sing the wrong words. I don't know about you guys. But to sing with all of the redeemed of the Lord, past, present, and future, all the angels singing in perfect unity and unison, not getting off tempo or pitch, it's amazing. So I want to thank uh, the choir for their hard work, and Stephen and Elaine, and Laura, that was a special song, really enjoyed that. If you have your bulletins, I have a few announcements to highlight before we jump into our message today. This Wednesday night, we're having a special time of fellowship starting at 5.30, and we're having firehouse subs, so if you haven't reserved, there's a little thing you can reserve your place in the bulletin. So it starts at 5.30, and if you get off work later, just let us know, we'll save you a sub. And the service starts at 6.15, and we're going through the Gospel of Matthew together, talking about how God wants us to be on mission. Also, if you'll look in your bulletin, we have um, next Sunday's a big day. What is it? Mother's Day. And last minute, I arranged for Diana to uh, help us. We're going to have Family Picture Day for Mother's Day. So if you will come dressed up, we're going to take your picture. Hopefully, it will be set up in the back as you come in the lobby area. So Family Picture Day for Mother's Day. So... Ladies, make sure your husband uh, gets dressed up that day. I know you'll be dressed up, but uh, it's going to be fun. So family picture day next Sunday for Mother's Day. And we want to honor all of our mothers. And it's going to be a special message. We're going to take a little break from First Peter so we can do a, a message just for mothers and mothers to come. So be sure next Sunday you make a note of that. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in First Peter. And we're going to be in chapter number 2 today, starting in verse 11. Today we're going to talk about how sometimes your greatest enemy is your enemy. Sometimes the greatest challenges are the challenges you face within yourself. And recently, um, for those of you who have been following some of the stuff on Facebook, I've been on a turkey hunt trying to get the ever-elusive gobbler. So... uh, we have a picture of the beginning of the hunt. Uh, That's my friend Robin in his camo truck. And then last time I didn't wear camo. This time I wore camo. So I was ready. Someone told me in my last picture my hand was on the trigger. They said you can't have your hand on the trigger unless you're shooting something. So you notice my hand's away from the trigger. And I, the three mistakes I, I learned I did last time I corrected. I, um, I wore camo, which I didn't last time. You remember the second mistake I made? I didn't go target practicing, so we, we were in the woods, and I was afraid the shotgun would, like, knock me down, but it didn't. It was fine. It was just a 12-gauge, not too powerful, so I did target practice. And then I tuned my inner ear for the sound of the gobbler. How many of you, by show of hands, have turkeys in your yard this time of year? Okay. So, before we show you the next picture, actually, it's already there. Let's go back. Um, we went to four, about four different counties. And we went in the woods, we did the turkey call, and I mean, we, we spent literally hours on the road in the woods, and we only heard one or two gobblers, and I'm like, this is crazy. So on my way back from the turkey hunt, I get a phone, call, phone text from my wife with this picture saying, look what's in her yard. If you'll notice, there's at least two gobblers. The third one I can't tell because it's bending down, but at least two gobblers. So I came home discouraged. We had an inner hunt early because of the rain. Didn't kill anything. And I texted my neighbor, uh, do you want turkey? He didn't respond, so uh, I, I didn't think he wanted me to kill the neighborhood turkey. So I'm like, it's right there, you know. 
So by the time I got home, the turkeys were gone. And then as I was eating dinner, after it started raining and it decimated, the rain stopped, the gobbler came out again and looked straight at me through the windows, feathers up, and just stared at me. So I'm like, baby, I can't take this. I went outside after the gobbler, and he ran away. And I didn't put a picture of, for those of you who have Facebook, you can see I posted a picture of a gobbler at the church, Arden First Baptist. I was talking to Elaine. I'm like, Elaine, oh my goodness. And I, in mid-conversation, I stopped the conversation, ran out, and there was a gobbler right out in the yard here. And I, I've been taunted by turkeys, and I don't know what to do about it. So, uh, so anyways, that's, that's my wild, crazy turkey story. And I began to think... And uh, this is for J.D., he'll like this. But there's a lot of similarities with turkeys, especially the gobblers, and your old nature. Your inner me, the, the old nature. Not your new nature that's been born again, but your old nature. And I'm going to draw some similarities. Number one, both are difficult to conquer. Um, this is not on your outline. This is just uh, my introduction, so it's not on your notes. But both are difficult to conquer. Every time I try to kill a turkey, I can. A lot of times those habits and those hang-ups and those struggles, you try to conquer it. And it doesn't seem to work. You guys following me? Number two, both come out when you least expect. You know, when I try to chase the turkey, it's gone as a loser. When I'm not looking for it, it comes out. How many of you know sometimes your old nature is that way? When you least expect it, anger and rage and just the struggles comes out. And number three, this is, this is for J.D. here about the gobblers. Both like to parade. They like to strut around, feathers out. And that's like your old nature, likes to strut around. And um, so today's message, we're going to talk about how sometimes your greatest enemy is your inner me. The old nature, Paul calls it the old man. And we're going to see in First Peter here how sometimes it's a struggle to conquer it. And the only way that you can conquer it is you've got to replace self with the Savior. And we're going to talk about how to do that. So jump in the Word with me, First Peter chapter 2. And starting in verse 11, it says, Beloved, I love that word beloved. Peter uses this terminology eight times in his epistles, and it means that you're dearly loved by God. So if you came in here this morning thinking that you didn't feel very lovable, or you had a bad week, or work is crazy, your boss is crazy, your coworkers are crazy, whatever crazy may be, know that you're loved by God. He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. To abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That word abstain means to hold away from yourself. Just stay away from it. It says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That when they speak of you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now Gentiles, he's not talking about non-Jews here. He's talking about non-Christians. Verse 13, it says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or as to those who are sent as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. In other words, verse 14 saying the job of government is to punish those who do wicked and to reward those who do great. And that's really a government that functions well should do that. And uh, it seems like in today's world, it's sometimes the opposite. Those who do good are punished, and those who do evil get away with it. But that's not how God intended government. It says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance 
of foolish men. As free, yet not using your liberty, your freedom as a cover-up for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people. You know that word all, sometimes it's hard to do all, right? Honor, it's easy to honor some people, but it says to honor all people. Love the brotherhood. It's talking about your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Fear God and honor the king. Let's pray over God's word. Father, sometimes our greatest enemy is our inner me. That old nature before Christ that struggles with things of this world, that bring us down, that trip us up. But God, I pray that today as we talk about this, that you would give us the power to replace self with the Savior on the throne of our heart. That we know that we still struggle, but we have someone that can relate and understand and prays for us. And Father, I pray that we would find that grace we need and our help in our time of need. Please help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your bulletin, there's a little listening guide you can follow along with me. But a few things about your enemy. Number one, stay away from that which brings you down. Verse 11 in 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. D.L. Moody once said that the greatest struggle he had was with himself. I think some of us can say the same thing. It's not with any other man, but this man. And what Peter starts off with, he says, Beloved. So when you know you're loved by God, it helps you to minimize the love for the things of this world. When you know you're loved and cherished by God, it helps you realize that the love for God is greater than anything I could desire in this world. And he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. The word war, literally in the Greek, it means to wage a campaign against, like a war campaign. You ever been in the battle of temptation where it feels like a war is raging inside of you? And it's kind of like you see the cartoon where it's like the good guy and the bad guy on each shoulder and they're each trying to get you to do wrong. And it's like Paul said in Romans 7 how he wants to do good, but he ends up sometimes doing the bad thing. And how we have this old nature, the Bible calls the flesh, that's constantly at war. And Peter says instead of feeding that nature... Stay away from those things that trip you up, that hold you down. Because the reason why, the reason why the Bible has do not commands is not because God wants to take away your fun. A lot of times as a teenager and students here, you'll think parents and teachers have rules because they want to take away your fun. It's not that, it's because they love you and they want what's best for you. So anytime you see a thou shalt not in the Bible, it's not thou shalt not because I'm a cosmic killjoy and I want to take away your fun. It's thou shalt not because this will hurt you. And I'm a loving God and I don't want to see you hurt. When the Bible gives you a do command, it's not because I want to get you on a performance treadmill. It's because if you do this, this will be good for your soul. This will be good for your life. And sin has consequences. I, I was looking up some stats recently. And this may blow you away. But at least 40% of all births in the U.S. are outside of marriage. And 40% of current 14-year-old girls will be pregnant before the age of 20. That's 4 out of 10. And about 1 million abortions occur each year in the U.S. alone. One in four adults approximately have an STD in America. And 19 million every year are infected with a newly STD in America. So the reason why God says don't do certain things is not because he don't want you to have fun. It's because he realizes the consequence. 
So when Peter says stay away from it, it's saying, listen, I want you to stay away from this because this is very harmful. And God, because he loves you so much, notice it starts off with beloved, you're loved by God. Because God loves you so much, he doesn't want to see you get hurt. And um, so that's, that's hard sometimes to grasp as, as a young person growing up. And even as you grow older, sometimes you forget the reason why God says no is because it could hurt you. Uh, a few years back, um, around summertime, I loved to eat watermelon. And I was in seminary. Anybody love watermelon in here? i got a big picture for you to desire. It's getting watermelon season. And growing up, my family used to go by the river, and we'd go to French Broad River and eat a ginormous, juicy watermelon. And every time you took a big bite into it, the watermelon was just, oh, it tastes so good. Any of you guys getting hungry? And I don't, I don't know what it is about people in the South. Uh, I'm from Appalachia, but people here in the South tend to put salt on watermelon. Any of you salt your watermelon? I don't understand you at all, because... Why would you mess up something that's sweet? My family does it. I, I've been a no-salter. I just don't get it. So when I was in seminary, I was away from my family and didn't get to do the tradition of going by the river. So I was with some of my seminary friends, and Walmart had watermelons on sale. It was like three ninety nine. and as a poor seminary student, I'm like, this is a great deal. Let's get a, this big, ginormous, juicy watermelon. So I got it, and time passed by, and my friend is like, you know you should put that in the fridge, right? This is Texas. It's hot. I'm like, it'll be okay. You know, watermelons are ripened out in the sun. It'll be fine. So eventually, a few days later, we noticed the watermelon started getting a little growth on the end of it. And we were busy doing the classes, and we're like, you know, it's not a big deal. So I got one of the, the knives in the kitchen, and I chopped the end of it off, and I threw it out. And I said, it's still good, see? I just cut the bad part off. And for some reason, I forgot about the watermelon. A few days later passed. It's still not in the fridge. And we're just sitting, hanging out, seminary talk. And all of a sudden, we heard this, this big explosion. And the smell that followed, I would describe it in graphic detail, but I will not for your stomach's sake, but it was putrid. And everyone looked at me, and I looked at them, and we knew exactly what had happened. The watermelon had gotten rotten on the inside, and it can no longer support its weight. So it rolled off the counter and onto the floor, and watermelon goo was all over the seminary kitchen. And I hate to admit this. This is, this is about ten years ago, so I, you know, I've grown since then. But um, I, I walked away because I about lost my stomach, and my friends had to help me clean up the mess because I couldn't handle it. And that sounds really bad. I should have been the one cleaning it up. It was, it was really bad. So my friends uh, stepped in there for me. And... On reflection, after all the nausea and all that cleared, I realized sometimes sin is that way in our life. We're like, it's not a big deal. It's just a little sin. It's just a little, you know, a little this, a little that. And eventually it grows so bad, it gets out of control. And it doesn't just impact you. It impacts everyone else has to deal with your mess. And uh, talking about a graphic story. You guys are going to be talking about that at lunch, right? So stay away from that which brings you down. And if you do... This will allow your spiritual life to grow up if you stay away from that which brings you down. Number two, talk with your walk so that your walk may silence vain talk. I'll have to say that again. It's a mouth twister. Talk with your walk so that your walk may silence vain talk. Look at verse 12. It says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And Gentiles equals, i.e., those who don't know Christ. That when they see when they speak about you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, 
glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, I want you guys to get this, that the world around you is watching you. Verse 12 says they're observing. And that word observe literally means that they're, in, they're by analysis observing your life. And they're like the silent by, bystander at work. They're that person at the Ingalls checkout line that you ch- they check out. They see you coming every week. And some days you're doing good, other days you're not. Some days you're in control, some days you're out of control. They're observing all these things. And they, you know, Mike the butcher and uh, Bob that works at the laundromat down the road, they're, they're watching. And when they see you, they're, they're going to have two responses. You're going to say, well, that's exactly why I'm not a Christian. Because the church is full of what? Hypocrites. You've heard it. Or they'll say, man, that person's got something that's very different. And eventually, that will lead to their salvation experience. And that, the day of visitation I'm talking about, there's two possible interpretations. One is when Jesus Christ comes back again and visits the world. Another possible interpretation is their day of visitation is the day when they receive Christ, when he visits them with grace, love, and mercy. So either interpretation, God's going God's to visit them. But our hope is that by your walk, you'll eventually change their vain talk against you. Like the church is just full of hypocrites. I was reading a story. In the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs met at a council in Buffalo Creek, New York. And the the missionary, he was from the Boston Missionary Society. His name is Mr. Cram. And he presented the gospel to this group of Indians. They were a bunch of chiefs and captains of their tribes. And one of the Indians, Mr. Red Chief, Mr. Red Jacket said, basically, you know, I hear what you're saying, sir, but there's two things I want to bring to your attention. Number one is you white people say that there's only one great spirit, but how come even among yourselves you disagree so much? If you guys all read the same book, why are there so many disagreements among you? Number two, I understand that you guys are preaching to the local white people in our village. These are our neighbors, and we're very well acquainted with them. So if you, you, by your preaching, if their lives change and we see a change, meaning that they stop stealing from us as Indians and they stop treating us poorly, if we see a life change, then we're willing to hear your message again. And what is sad is how many of us, if they would observe us, there wouldn't be enough change in us to want them to change. And as I read that story, I'm like, wow, we live in front of a watching world. In Matthew five fourteen through 16, it says this. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, a verse that many of you know, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Your good works, your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. So what would happen if you talked by your walk and your walk allowed others to share about why you're living this life? What would happen if we begin to talk with their actions? And people are saying, well, why are you doing this? And it gave you an opportunity to share the hope that you had. All right, so we need to, if we want to overcome the enemy, we need to stay away from that which brings us down. Number two, talk with your walk. So that you may silence vain talk. And number three, get under the umbrella of authority. Verses 13 and following. It says, therefore submit. Most people wish that word was not in the Bible. 
But really, submit, it means to yield to. It means to get under. And it's a positive word, which I'll describe in a little bit. It says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Notice, it's not just for your sake, but it's for God's sake. If you love the Lord, this is what you'll do. Whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those doing good. Verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, there's that word again, doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, in your Bibles, you may want to underline silence. It's an interesting graphic word picture in the Greek. It literally means to muzzle. So, in other words, the watching world, when they see you do things that praise and honor God, it's like putting a muzzle on a yapping dog. Have you ever seen a muzzle on a dog? They can't really yap as much. And it's saying that if you live the life where others see it, it muzzles the people that want to talk negative against you. So what does that look like? Well, I have an umbrella here. They said not to open umbrellas in church, but I guess I'll make an excuse. But what do you use an umbrella for? Somebody tell me. How many of you needed one of these last night? It was bad, wasn't it? A deluge, flood. An umbrella is symbolic of getting under something so that it protects you from the weather. And authority is kind of like an umbrella. Whenever you get under authority, it protects you from that which comes against you. Whenever you're away from it, like this, is it protecting me? No. So when God says get under something, it's, it's not because he wants to take away your joy. It's a protective covering. So in all of our lives, we have authority. For those of you who are in school, how many students we have in here? Okay, all the way to college. O'Neill and I are still in school forever, right? <laughs> so when you're in school, you have teachers, professors, and they're trying to help you. It's not because they want to make your life crazy and have you learn a bunch of things. It's because they're trying to help you grow. Okay, how many of you have a job? All right, unless you're the CEO, president, you have people who work under you. And even then, usually you have board of directors and other things. So... We all have umbrellas of authority. Now, I heard this from a pastor in Texas, and it stuck with me. But whenever you get under what God has over you, God will raise you above what he has under you. You want to hear that again? Whenever you get under what God has over you, God will raise you above what he has under you. So what that means is, if, if I'm a person that understands authority... And as a student, I understand teachers are there for my good. As a son or daughter, I understand parents are there for my good. As a spouse, I understand the way God set everything up in marriage is for my good. If I get under that and God sees my humble heart of submission, what he does is he raises me above what he has under me. And Jesus said, if you've been faithful in little things, I will make you ruler over many things, right? So authority is actually a grace gift. It's not a curse word. It's, it's not, the, word, the word submit is not, not a bad word. But it literally means yield. How many of you have ever been driving down the road and you see this sign? Has anybody ever got upset? Like, I can't believe that sign there. I was here first. They're coming on. Okay. Just, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just going to go on. What would happen if you were at a yield sign and you saw incoming traffic and you just went on anyways? What would happen? A crash, right? So whenever the Bible has yield signs, it doesn't mean it's because you're less than 
or anything like that. It just means this is for your own well-being. And the Bible is a book to help you to live a life that God wants you to live. Jesus said, you know, the thief, his job description is to kill, steal, and... But he said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So whenever we get under the umbrella of authority, we realize it's a grace gift. Notice in the scripture it says that you yield for whose sake? You yield for the Lord's sake. So I want you guys to realize if you want to overcome one of your greatest enemies, which is your inner me, you have to learn to yield to authority. Number four, use your freedom to serve God and not yourselves. Verse number 16 says, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Now, here's a, here's a great Christian debate, and I've heard this all my life growing up. And a lot of people will say, well, once saved, always saved. Does that mean you get to do whatever you want? Anybody ever heard that before? I've heard that all my life. Now, the question is, are you saved from sin or to sin? Last time I read my Bible, you're saved from sin, not so you can sin. It's deliverance from it. So if someone is saved so they can sin more, did, did they really turn from their sin? That sounds like in this verse where it says a cover-up. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who pull the Jesus card so they can cover up what they're doing, their hidden agenda. And unfortunately, it makes the, the cause of Christ look really bad. An evangelist, D.L. Moody, once had a glass full of water, and half of it was gone. And all of a sudden, people looked at the glass, and he said, how can I get air out of this glass? And one man in the audience said, well, you can get a vacuum and suck it out. And he said, well... If you sucked out the air, the glass would break. Does anybody else know how you can get it out? And finally, he drew the conclusion, the only way to get the air out of the glass is you have to fill it completely with water. It can't be half empty. And the same way in your Christian life, if you're struggling with your inner me, if you're struggling with the old nature, a lot of things that you're trying aren't working because you're doing it in your own self. And the only way to get these things out of your life and to find victory it's through the power of the Holy Spirit filling your life. If you're just operating on, I'm just half in and half out, you will find yourself perpetually defeated. So you have been set free. You're no longer consumed with self, but you're now focused on the Savior. Many of you are big sports fans. And it's, what's interesting about sports is usually the commercials are usually advertising what? Beer, right? That's usually the most commercials, right? And, you know, we're not going to get in the whole debate of how much is too much or any of that. But here, here's the point. There, there's a line in the commercials that says it doesn't get any better than this. You ever heard that line in a lot of commercials? And I'm thinking that's actually a true statement. If you overindulge in anything, it doesn't really get better. It typically gets worse, right? It doesn't show the person throwing up at 2 in the morning. It doesn't show the, the girl, you know, having a one-night stand because she had too much to drink. It doesn't say any of that. So here, here's, here's the devil's strategy. He gives you the best he's got, and then things just seem to get worse. And Jesus gives you what's good, and he saves the best for last. So I don't know about you, but I, I want to get it on the good, and I, I want it to keep getting better. And that doesn't mean life's going to be easy. It doesn't mean you won't have challenges. But when you look at it from an eternal perspective, even if you have a rough life in this world, eternity's waiting for you, right? Jesus said, in this world you will have what? Problems. You will. So it, the, the full life doesn't mean you won't have problems. It just means you'll have Jesus to help you with it. 
And you've got eternity waiting where there's no more problems. So I don't know about you, but I'm signing up for that strategy, not I'm signing up for something that seems good and just gets worse. I've never seen someone who doesn't have Christ on their deathbed that's excited to die. I've never seen that. Maybe you have, but I just can't wait to die and not know what waits on the other side. But I've seen many, many Christians that have peace on their deathbed. Because guess what? They're free and they're full of life. Amen? All right, finally. Create a culture of honor in your relationships. This is the final verse. It says, honor all people. Now, how is that possible to honor all people? Because if you think like I do, not all people are honorable. So how do you honor someone that's not honorable? There's someone in your life right now that you're having a hard time honoring. How do I know that? Because we all do. And they may be, may be at your work. They may be one of your friends. They may be in your family. But what the Scripture says is you can honor all people because all people are made in whose image? They're made in the Imagio Dei, the image of God. So even if you're not honorable, the Bible tells me I'm to show you honor even if you don't show it back to me. Because what that's doing is showing someone's Christ's love, unconditional. People rejected Jesus, but He still loved them. People nailed Him to a cross and He said, forgive them for what? They don't know what they do. So the people that aren't living the way they should, you're still to honor them. That's really hard, but that's, that's something God wants us to do. Notice it says, love the brotherhood. If Arden First could be a church where love is felt everywhere, when you go to Sunday school class, which I would recommend, it's a great opportunity for you guys if you'd like to get involved in a Bible study. When you go to choir practice, when you go to youth, when you go to whatever, it should be a culture of love. So at Arden First, we're going to bring honor to Arden First. We're going to bring love. Because God is pleased with these things. And it says, fear God. That word fear God does not mean you live in dread of God all the days of your life. It means that you have such a holy reverence and respect for God that you obey His commands. You don't take them lightly. So it doesn't mean that you're fearful to the point that you can't do anything because you're afraid. It means that I respect God so I don't take them lightly. And then it says, honor the king. The king represents everyone in your life that's in authority. Everyone that's over you that we need to love. How many of you have read anything by Gandhi or heard some of his quotes? He's a pretty influential guy. And many of you know that he was a Hindu, but some of you don't know his backstory. He often would quote from the Sermon on the Mount. He quoted from the Bible. And in his young days, he was a practicing lawyer in South Africa. And he was really thinking about becoming a Christian. He had read Jesus' words. He loved the Sermon on the Mount. He loved the sayings of Jesus. So he had went to this large church in South Africa. And he was thinking about becoming a Christian. And as he was walking up those large steps to this church, this white African man said, what are you doing? And he called him a racial slur. I can't say it behind the pulpit, but what are you doing? he said, well, I'm coming here to worship. And the guy basically said, people of your skin color aren't welcome here. And he said, you better get on down or I'm going to have one of my elders throw you off the steps. And this is a church. Now, how many of you would think if someone showed up at Arden first and we treated him that way, you think they'd ever come back? Do you think they'd ever give Christianity another chance? So, all of a sudden he decided, you know what, I'm going to adopt some of the good sayings of Christ. But if this is what Christianity is all about, I'm not going to become a Christian. And according to the story, a famous pastor, E. Stanley Jones, actually asked him, 
And he said, listen, you know, Gandhi, you say all these sayings of Christ. Why don't you follow him? And this is what he said. He said, I love your Christ, but your Christians are so much unlike your Christ. So I love Jesus, but I don't love the people of God. And that's just, that's just heartbreaking. So when it says love all, love all people, honor all people, love the brotherhood, you know, when you live in a culture of honor and love, it changes the way you do life. And I'm just wondering here by application, if we would apply these principles of our lives, and I'll just go back and repeat them, stay away from that which brings you down. Talk with your walk so that you may silence vain talk. Get under the umbrella of authority. If we were all people that yielded for our own good and we understood authority, if we used our freedom to serve God and it wasn't selfish, it wasn't for selves, and we created a culture of honor in our relationships, what would happen? Whatever you elevate, others will celebrate. What are you elevating in your life? What are the things that you elevate and celebrate? Who are the people that you highly respect? Whatever you elevate, others will celebrate. So at Arden First, can we create a culture of honor? Can we create a culture of love? Can we create a culture when people come here, they experience the love and the truth and the grace of God? Amen? So, how do you overcome your inner me? Look at the screen here. Sometimes your greatest enemy is your what? Inner me. Overcome your inner me by replacing self with the Savior. Okay, here's some family talk questions. What is one thing in your life that could bring you down in your walk with the Lord? And we all have those. The thing I didn't mention is Satan knows what your weakness is. He knows exactly that one thing. Whether it be anger, whether it be substances, addictions, whatever, we all have that one thing, that spiritual Achilles. What is that one thing? And this may be something if you're married, you just talk to your spouse about. You know, if you're a teenager here, maybe you know you you can open up to your parents. And this second question is really hard. What is one authority in your life that's a challenge to yield to? What is what is one authority? Is it that boss? Is it that family member? Is it that friend? Um, who is over you in a certain capacity, whether at work, supervisory role that you just don't respect? Oh, that's tough. And finally, what is one person, who is one person that you need to honor this week? The Bible says honor some people, all people. So those are some things to think about. So overcome your inner me by replacing self with the Savior. Let us pray. Father, Your word is powerful, and your word is profound. And God, I pray that we would stay away from that which holds us down. And I pray that we would run towards that which brings us up. The people, the places that would help us grow in our relationship with you. Right now, with uh, no one looking around, would anyone say, Pastor Timothy, (laughs) when you said that sometimes our greatest enemy is the inner me, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And I'm going through some struggles right now. Would you please pray for me? Thank you. See that hand? Raising my hand with you. Father, you see those hands raised towards heaven. I pray that whatever their struggle is inside, that they would know it's not self-effort. It's not trying to be a better person in itself. It's allowing Jesus to fill me. As John the Baptist said, I must decrease 
so that Jesus could increase. And I pray that would be the goal of our hearts, Lord, that you would help us as we continue to grow in our faith. If there be one here today that has never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we're going to give you a chance in a moment, the the hymn of invitation. You could come down. And it's your heart reaching out to God, asking Him to forgive you. So we're going to give you a chance right now. So, Father, please hear our heart. Please hear our prayers. And thank you, God, that we can overcome those challenges, those struggles by surrendering it to Jesus. And we thank you that the best life is yet to come. We thank you that you have eternity waiting for us. So, God, in the here and now, help us to live for you. We love you and we give you praise. And all God's children said, amen. At this time, if you'll stand, we have our closing hymn of invitation. This is an opportunity if you would like to make a spiritual decision, if you'd like more information about how to join the church or anything you'd like for us to pray for about, Brother Adam and I will be at the front to pray with you guys.